Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Yemen and the danger posed to international shipping, a meeting between the Palestinian president and the Israeli defense minister, and why U.S. relations with China and Russia are so bad. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, first things first, Happy New Year's, everybody. Let's uh, see what this uh, 2022 has to offer us, shall we? There's that. The Prime Minister in Sudan, Abdullah Hamdak, has resigned from office, probably causing another political crisis in the process, although we'll have to wait and see on that one, as it hasn't seemed that they've fallen into another political crisis. I guess they're just still reeling from the military taking over. And we'll see what happens with them. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's another political crisis. But, we'll, again, we'll just have to watch them. But we've been doing that anyway, so... Probably expect an update at some point. Meanwhile, speaking of political crises, the Libyan parliament has suspended their session without a resolution on the handling of their own political crisis following the one-month postponement of their national election, which was meant to put an end to their civil war. So, Libya has a political crisis, and it deepens because they've uh, chosen not to say anything about the crisis. They've chosen to end this session. So, we'll see... Where things go there as well, although I can probably guess it's called violence and conflict. So two political crises for the price of one. And one of them is a civil war and the other one is on the verge of civil war. So always nice in Africa, Northeast Africa. Rockets from Palestine have caused a shakeup near Tel Aviv. Indonesia bans coal exports due to shortages uh, of the fuel domestically. Pakistan and India have engaged in annual exchange of prisoner lists and information on their nuclear assets. Very interesting thing that they do. I am not sure if other countries do this. I think they're the only ones that do. And I guess that's why they haven't shot each other yet. So, But it's a good thing. It's a peculiar thing, but it's a good thing. It keeps them from fighting. Maybe either maybe they ought to try, India ought to try it with China. Although I'm not entirely sure the Chinese would ever be transparent with them. So, uh, I guess the status quo is just going to have to do for now. Although it too is pretty unhealthy. Uh, Bahrain has appointed an ambassador to Damascus for the first time in 10 years. Uh, Damascus is the capital of Syria, which is why this, to me, is a further indication that the Syrian civil war is indeed coming to a close, and more and more countries are now recognizing Assad as the winner of that war, and are trying to reestablish relations with the perceived winner, the government of Syria. China has opened a new embassy in Nicaragua. Belarus has proposed amendments to their constitution. And there's talk that they may extend Lukashenko's reign in power. Similar to what Russia did for Putin, where Putin got his name written into the constitution, basically resetting his terms. So he was coming up on the term limit. They reset his terms, his terms specifically, that's why yeah, I mentioned him specifically. And so he got a, a whole fresh start, and he's going to be there for a while. And mean, and in China, they just there are, there is no term limit for Mao. Uh, uh, Mao, I mean Xi. 
there is no term limit for him, although there was no term limit for Mal either. But it wouldn't be out of the blue for a move like that to happen. Although, I'll have to wait and see. I won't make any judgments as to whether or not they will do that. Because the amendments have to be approved to even take place. So, well, we'll keep an eye. I have no doubt we'll be talking about Belarus at some point in the future. That's just the nature of the current news cycle. In other news, though, two aides to Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, that is the presidential candidate in Myanmar who's been jailed on charges of election fraud, two aides to her, uh, that is Huntar Mint, Huntar Mint and Thane U, they have been sentenced to two years in prison, and Sun Suki's trial continues, although she has not, to my knowledge, been sentenced yet. I think they're going to drag this out a little bit longer to get more people who worked with her. And that's the military doing this, as they were the ones who took power after the election last year. Uh, well, no, not last year. The year before. 2020. Yes, it was 2020 that the elections happened, and the coup happened in, I believe, February of last year. It feels like such a long time ago. But maybe that's just because 2020 was an eternity packed into a year. But... Regardless, uh, Russia has conducted air raids in Idlib province in Syria against rebel forces who were fighting the government, because Russia backs the Assad government there. So, more and more evidence piling on that Assad and those who back him are winning in the Syrian civil war, and that that war is indeed coming to a close. But that is the rapid-fire news. Oh yeah, it's actually rapid fire this time. And we'll be talking about Yemen uh, next. Alright, let's talk about Yemen. So, the Houthis have captured a UAE vessel off the coast of Yemen. Now the Saudis, that's Saudi Arabia, the Saudis say that that vessel held medical equipment that was supposed to be going towards the... Uh, well obviously going towards the coalition fighting there against the Houthis. Uh, the Houthis have not apologized for what they've done. Because why would they? It's war. And, well, the, the fighting continues. But while this seems like a pretty trivial thing, uh, at first glance, it caught my attention. Because to me... It's an indicator of two things. Two things. The first is is an indicator that the Houthis are growing stronger in the conflict as they have the spare capacity to successfully capture an enemy ship, uh, enemy shipping, I should say, even with the heavy casualties that they're taking in their offensive on land which has only won them pretty small territorial gains. Uh, at, again, this came with heavy costs in men. They have lost thousands in this offensive, and yet they have the spare capacity to attack and raid and capture enemy shipping, denying them these medical supplies, which... I'm sure we're on the craft, along with other things that the Saudis have chosen not to bring up. Because that's how it is, you know, in war. We saw it in World War One when, with, say, the Lusitania, where the British used it as a cover to bring weapons to the front line, even though they publicly said that it was just a civilian liner, although we found out later on after the war that, yeah, it did have weapons on board. So, but the PR was bad for Germany at the time because they sunk the ship. So, something similar to that is what we've seen here with this shipping and the medical supplies that were probably on it, along with, say, weapons, 
We know how it goes. But the fact that the, the Houthis were able to capture this while taking these heavy losses in their offensive on land, which is still ongoing to my knowledge, says that their capacity has grown and the operations that they're able to undertake have also expanded. And they've done this successfully as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Which shows that they're growing in strength. Uh, because on the other side of this equation, you have to factor in that the Saudi-backed coalition that the Houthis are fighting, they have superior firepower. They have superior weapons. They have drones. They have an entrenched position in a mountainous part of this country. Because the, the west, the western half of Yemen, is, that's where the mountains are. That's where the hills and the mountains are. So, an entrenched position in hills and mountains, and in the cities, because cities themselves are an environment in and of themselves, which are great for defenders and hor horrible for attackers. You're talking that. As your defensive position, you have better weapons, you have command of the skies, you have air superiority, and you're resupplied by sea, rather than, you're resupplied by sea and air, rather than by land. So, your supplies are safe, or at least they were. Your enemy has to come by land, you have better weapons, control of the skies. And they're taking incredible losses every time they attack your position. The Houthis are taking incredible losses every time they attack coalition positions. And yet, in spite of having the co in spite of the co the coalition, the Saudi-backed coalition, in spite of having superior weapons, control of the skies, they have drones, they in spite of inflicting these heavy losses on the Houthis every time the Houthis, you know, make a move in their offensive, the Houthis are still pressing them and making gains on the coalition. The Houthis are still winning. So, with those two sides of this coin factored in to each other, I think it is definitely safe to say that as of right now, the Houthis are winning. But the gaining, they're making slow and steady gains on their momentum as well. I do believe they're winning. Uh, but that's the first thing I took away from this. Not just that the Houthis were winning, but that they were. That It seems like they are expanding in their capabilities. So that was my first takeaway. The second takeaway I have is the fact that Shipping is no longer safe in the waters around the Middle East. Because, if you remember, it was a UAE vessel that was captured by Houthi troops and seized. That is... Well, that's what got me talking about this story in the, in the first place. But for months now, we've seen... Uh, beyond this conflict, we've seen Iran seizing vessels in the Persian Gulf, which created an international incident between them and South Korea, uh, mediated by Qatar, and thankfully de-escalated before that South Korean destroyer that they commissioned to go get their oil back. Uh, thankfully, the situation was de-escalated before that destroyer made it to the Gulf, in which case there would have been war, because... I, I always ask, whenever I bring this story up, what would have happened if that destroyer sailed its way all the way up to the Persian Gulf? And Iran still didn't give control of those oil tankers back to South Korea. What would have happened? I'll tell you what would have happened. It would have been war. Now, thankfully, war was averted, courtesy of the skillful diplomacy of Qatar the diplomatic capital of the Middle East. But, Iran has been attacking shipping in the Persian Gulf. But they're not the only ones who've been attacking shipping. 
as Israel has won up the Iranians, who almost caused wars in their stealing of oil tankers, the Israelis go even further beyond, and they flat out bomb Iranian vessels carrying anything that Israel happens to not want to get to its destination at that time. They were sending oil supplies to Syria by sea. Israel bombed it. They were they had their own oil tankers. Israel bombed it. They had various boats, the trading vessels that were trying to go to, I believe, Europe. Israel bombed it. The Israelis have been openly bombing Iranian shipping. And it was just out in the open, wide out in the open, especially shipping an aid that was going to Lebanon before. Israel has been attacking Iranian shipping. Now, th that's three players so far that are openly attacking other people's commercial shipping, attacking their commerce. In different ways, mind you, Israel uses the bombs, and Iran and the Houthis are capturing people's stuff. And I gotta say, when you look at a map of where these players are, Iran makes the Persian Gulf unsafe. The Houthis have made the Horn of Africa and the Straits of Djibouti unsafe, basically, because that's the that's a choke point that the Houthis can use to steal other people's shipping. So if that's a point of issue on top of piracy from Somalia, you gotta you gotta think. That's the Persian Gulf, that's the Arabian Sea, that's the Red Sea by default, uh, courtesy of the pirates and the piracy coming out of the Houthis and the Somalians. And then when you get up to Israel in the eastern Mediterranean, they're bombing shipping. They are dropping bombs. They're not even capturing your stuff, they're just bombing you. The East Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, and the Arabian Sea are not safe for shipping, depending on who you are, which makes the Red Sea in between them unsafe, well, uh, a safe zone, but a safe zone that is smashed in between very, very, very unsafe zones. And in order to get out from the Red Sea, you have to go through the unsafe zones. I mean, the Red Sea is off limits as well, basically. This is an astonishing development that I have noticed after adding the Houthis to the list of people who make the who, people who make shipping around this area unsafe. I mean. Again, it, they just straight out took someone else's shipping while they were fighting on land, ex expanding their capabilities, probably getting a good cache of weapons in the process. So they're fully incentivized to keep doing this. That's, the Houthis are fully incentivized to do this again at some point. Iran is definitely going to keep finding some way to lash out at Israel from its corner in the Middle East because backing the Palestinians can only get them so far in their eyes and they have to do something themselves because you know it Israel strikes them directly so even though it feels it will feel incredibly nice to have the Palestinians fight Israel in Israel at some point Iran has got to feel their leadership has got to feel like we've got to do something ourselves so, you try for retaliation with rocket strikes from bases in your allies' territories, like Syria and Lebanon and Jordan, as we saw multiple rocket launches on Israeli positions from those countries, who are very soundly within Iran's sphere of influence. But what is Iran able to do itself? It's really limited. So, shipping is one of the few things Iran can target to get back at 
Israel and countries that affiliate themselves with Israel. But at the same time, the easiest way to get goods to the other side of Iran's sphere of influence, the easiest way to get goods to the Houthis in Yemen or to Lebanon and Syria is by way of the sea. But that means Israel gets to bomb your shipping and Israel is more than happy to do so. So we have players, three players as it stands right now, that make shipping unsafe. Now with the Houthis, it is currently bottled up to their war and the participants of it, the direct participants of it. So that's Arabian shipping, Yemen, Yemeni government shipping, and Houthi shipping, uh, which is supplied by Iran, which is undoubtedly targeted by the coalition against the Houthis. So it's bottled up in that case, but with Iran, it is also bottled up, but due to geography rather than political constraints, as, again, they stole a South Korean oil tanker and almost started a war. But for them, it's sort of, the Persian Gulf is bottled up naturally by the shape of the Arabian Peninsula, but that helps them steal vessels. In Israel's case, however... Um, they are under none of those constraints, or at the very least, they don't act like they do. Uh, not just in terms of where they attack shipping. It's sort of wide open in the East Mediterranean. So they can attack shipping at any moment, coming out or going through the Suez Canal. But they are under none of the same international constraints that say the Houthis would be in if they started attacking shipping indiscriminately, or that Yemen is, not Yemen, or that Iran is under, if they were to respond equally to what Israel does. Israel, again, I brought this up in the last episode, or the episode before that, they, they sort of get a pass in what they do, and... Well, yeah, it was the last episode, because we were talking about how Israel, they, they're currently ethnically cleansing. That's the, that is the most honest way of putting it. They are ethnically cleansing their territory of Palestinians and ethnically cleansing Palestinians from the territories of Palestine. And they get a pass on the international scene. There's no sanctions that have been levied against them, although let let Russia even think about doing something like that, or or let Russia be accused of doing something like that. They'll get slapped with sanctions uh, left, right, and center. Belarus, they don't even have to do anything. They just have to let people walk through their country to get to the EU. Now, sanctions. Uh, China is a bit of a different story. They're, by the weight of their economy, they get a pass as well, yeah, mainly because there's not much... Mm, Anybody is going to be able to do against China without a worldwide coalition, but everyone trades with China, so no one wants a worldwide coalition against China. Uh, but um, Israel? How does Israel get this pass? I'm not entirely sure how they get it. Um, even, even with the U.S. backing them, I, you would suppose other countries would impose sanctions of their own. Uh, through other means, but f for whatever reason, Israel has an effective pass, and they're really making use on it. Uh, I, they're really, really making use on it. They're pushing Palestinians off their lands to try to settle the question or get as close to settling it as they can um, before pressure gets put on them, and they're straight up bombing other people's shipping, where Iran and the, the Houthis have to be content with capture. Where the pirates of Somalia have to be content with capturing, where Israel gets to go beyond what even the United States does and just bomb other people's shipping and their commerce. And at some point, I, I do believe that that's going to bring about a formal war between them and Iran. I'm just not sure when. 
Because like, it can't go on this way. It just realistically cannot go on that way without some sort of full-scale retaliation in the form of a war. And with the changing tides in the Middle East, I feel that that may become a possibility uh, in the not-too-distant future. And we'll see where the where the players stack up against each other at that point in time. Because Arabia is in reproachment with Iran. Israel is still hostile, but the Houthis are winning. They're winning. Assad is winning. I don't think Israel is prepared for that conflict. And that's as they are now. Let alone the stronger position, relatively speaking, that Iran's going to be in later. But that is a very interesting thing. Um, but, back to my main point, shipping is unsafe in the middle. That's just... That's just what this incident with the Houthis have shown me. Shipping is unsafe. And with uh, the Suez Canal, is very close. It's very, very close, and lots of shipping go through there. And if this region is no longer safe for shipping, then every instance like this makes it even more dangerous because it opens the lid on violence. And once you start doing things like this, you usually don't stop, and we've seen that not a single one of these players have stopped. Iran hasn't stopped. Israel certainly hasn't stopped. And, again, the Houthis have no reason to stop whatsoever. They are actively incentivized to keep going. They can get free supplies meant to go to their enemy, except they can take those supplies and use them for themselves. So they are actively incentivized to do more of this piracy. Assuming the Israelis don't blow it up first, or the Saudi coalition for that matter. But shipping is unsafe in the Middle in the waters around the Middle East. So with a canal where you have lots and lots and lots of shipping right next to this danger zone for commerce, if this trend of attacking other people's shipping continues, or Iran and Israel's war intensifies to something that people, you know, look at and immediately call a war instead of having to observe and, you know, see it as an undeclared state of conflict. If their war intensifies, then a massive amount, the absolute massive amount of shipping that goes through this canal will be in great danger. Because if the gloves came off, Iran has the range to hit a lot of these shipping. People believe that they don't because they exercise restraint and they have lots of outdated equipment, but they have the range. Let no one tell you differently. They have the range. Modern technology, semi-modern technology is capable of reaching from Iranian bases to at least the Red Sea. Which means they can hit everything. They can hit Israel. They can hit everything off the coast of Israel. They can hit everything going through the Suez Canal. They can hit the Red Sea. And similarly, Israel has the exact same capability. They also have the range to hit everything. Going into and out of the Suez Canal, they can hit as far away as the Arabian Sea too. Although that one would be a bit harder for them to do. But they could do it. So... If this conflict between them does escalate, as I believe it will, and the gloves come off and they start, and Iran starts bombing shipping too, um, this is going to be a, a problem. This is going to be a very big problem. And I, I'm just, just now starting to see how much of a problem it would be. Because, again... I think I brought up the number back when I was talking about the prospects of a new Ottoman Empire. About 18 trillion. Somewhere around that number. 18 trillion dollars worth of trade goes through that canal. 
So that's that is almost the an entire US economy's worth of money going through this canal that would be in danger that is already in danger really if if we're just being honest it's already in danger it just hasn't been attacked yet that's a that's a whole lot of commerce that we're talking like a ridiculous amount of commerce that is in danger should any of these conflicts escalate further and it looks like a lot of them will especially as we come to the climax of the war in Yemen at some point and as tensions continue to mount between Israel and Iran and eventually Iran's going to retaliate because the region is reconfiguring itself towards a more pro slash neutral to Iran stance which will free Iran's hand to deal with their enemy Israel and Israel's not going to go down without a fight. They're already fighting. There's a whole lot of trade at stake. And uh, just for a moment, could you imagine if Israeli jets bombed Iranian shipping while it was still in transit through the canal? That would be an international incident overnight. And people were panicked when that one ship got stuck in the Suez Canal and shipping couldn't get through. Could you? And there was backlogs. You could see it on the map where they had all the pings. They were tracking the shipping and when they were supposed to go through the canal. Could you imagine having all of those shipping containers just sitting still again, except in a, a more dangerous environment where Israel and Iran are shooting at each other and bombing their shipping? They'd be sitting ducks. Suddenly... Any limitations to hitting a moving target with your targeting systems go out the window because every target is sitting still. That'd be, that'd be horrifying. That'd be incredibly destructive and incredibly costly. But that's a, with every time, every time we see something like this happen where someone's shipping gets taken in this region specifically, with these forces at play, something like that becomes a greater and greater possibility. And I'll call it a possibility because so far, is Israel hasn't bombed someone's shipping while it had gone through the canal, but it's bombing shipping, and eventually others are going to do the same. But that's... Uh, that's Yemen. So, a danger zone indeed has made its way onto the map of hot spots. Of course, it had to be the Middle East. But, there's also the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is also a mess that Israel has to deal with. So, Israel is fighting multiple fronts here. But uh, uh, let's uh, talk about this, because Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, he has met with Mahmoud Abbas, which is the president of Palestine. They met together, they met in Gantz's home, supposedly, uh, and this was meant to be a symbolic gesture for building trust and making peace. According to President Mahmoud, the meeting was supposed to be part of a, quote, confidence-building measures, end quote. That was Mahmoud's goal, anyway. But what ended up happening instead was a spike in both violence along the Gaza Strip, which is the territory that Palestine has along the Mediterranean coast. So that's the Gaza Strip. Uh, and a spike in political animosity towards him back in Palestine as people are unhappy with him meeting with the defense minister of Israel. And as one Hamas commentator, Hazim Kasim, he put it, uh, Mahmoud Abbas was, quote, deepening Palestinian political divisions, end quote, 
and encouraged accommodation with, quote, the occupation, end quote. So, obviously he's referring to the Israeli military presence in parts of Palestine, and the constant, well, the straight-up occupation, that's the literal sense, but probably also he's pretty upset in talking about the fact that the Israelis are forcing Palestinians out of their home and off their land at the point of a gun as well. They're using their military for this as well. So lots of animosity have been built up towards him over this move that was supposed to help foster peace and help create business ties by enabling people to travel across the border. But what it ended up happening was creating stronger animosity. So neither side is still un... Both sides here are still unwilling to so much as look at each other without shooting. Uh, but that's not the leadership. The leadership is willing to meet, but the people in Israel and Palestine are unwilling to meet in the middle they wish to fight and fight is what they're going to continue doing because well if you can't get peace you're gonna keep war but Israel is fighting a multiple front war where the Palestinians are well they're, they're fighting a losing battle on one front but at least they only have one front to fight on. The Israelis, as we mentioned, are fighting Palestine, as well as the Iranian sphere of influence, up to and including Iran itself. And every day, the frontier where they're fighting Iran gets closer to Israel itself. Israel routinely carries out strikes and assassinations on people inside Iran, but... Iran continues to push the boundaries right up to Israel. And at that point, once the tides have turned sufficiently, it'll be Iran conducting direct attacks on Israel and Israeli personnel. And I don't know if Israel's going to be able to handle that. I don't know if they will. They'll probably, they'll, that will probably be the point at which there's a formal war, or the appearance of one, because they probably won't declare war, but anybody who looks at it will call it a war at that point. There is some strong conflict brewing between Israel and Iran, and Palestine will play a role in it in dampening whatever Israel is capable of doing beyond its own borders. So, every instance just builds on this mounting crisis that I see coming. That is a, that's the Palestinian question. It's uh, asked, unresolved, and it'll probably break the back of Israel. It'll probably break the back of Israel. But lastly, we're going to get to the this final topic I want to talk about. And that is uh, why U.S. relations with Russia and China are as bad as they are. So we'll, uh, we'll get into this. So, lately, there's been more and more talk in the news about U.S. relations with Russia and China. And this is mainly due to tensions that have built up over Ukraine and Taiwan. And while this has been in the news for a while, I've talked about the Eastern question. Uh, so that's Ukraine and Belarus and generally Europe versus Russia. I've talked about that. And before that, I pretty definitively laid out my position on the U.S.-China struggle over Taiwan. So I didn't feel a need, uh, especially with the weekly updates we were doing on the Eastern question, I didn't feel a need to really address this for a while, but I've managed to leave both of those topics alone for long enough to uh, warrant coming back, especially with the constant news about this. Uh, so, 
there's pretty bad relations with the U.S. and uh, with China and the U.S. and with Russia and the U.S. Again, this is primarily over the U.S.'s stance towards Ukraine and Taiwan, because both of which the U.S. is unwilling to stand down from. And we've, again, talked about the tensions over Ukraine, uh, the complications. Uh, it's a part of the larger complications that I've labeled the Eastern question. Uh, and that's primarily, the problem there is primarily over how NATO expansionism can't really go any farther because Russia feels it has nowhere left to retreat to, so it's really doubling down on its red lines. Similarly, China is unwilling to compromise on Taiwan, not because they don't have room to retreat to, but instead, it's because U.S. expansionism runs counter to Chinese expansionism. And China feels that its expansion is every bit as vital to Chinese interests as people perceive American expansion as being vital to it. No, I say perceive because America is in reality not pursuing its own interests here, but pursuing the interests of other countries rather than its own. And I believe that that is where the problem truly lies in U.S.-Russia and U.S.-China relations. America trying to conduct other countries' foreign policies for them. Uh, and, naturally, it leads us to have different stances towards countries than we would have if we were looking out for our own interests. And I've laid this out more definitively in the anniversary episode where I talked about the U.S. and the difference between it and the U.S. alliance system. So if you want a better understanding of where I am and what I mean when I say the U.S. is pursuing other countries' interests on these issues, that'd be the episode to look for. But um, back to this, uh, America's not protecting its own interests. And I mean, the size of our army reflects this as well. Uh, after all, what does the United States... What good, what use does the United States have for a million-man army? I mean, where's the danger nearby that warrants having such a, a large force? Is it Mexico? Is it Brazil? Cuba? Is it illegal immigration? It must not be, because we just let them come to the border. Is it Canada? Or perhaps uh, Greenland is up to no good. Nah, it's we all know it's neat. none of those. You know, none of them have made themselves a danger to the United States in any way that would warrant having such a massive army. Not even the illegal immigration, which probably warrants some troops, but not a million-man army. So why the large military? All of America's security interests are already accounted for in North and South America. So why is the military so large? Yeah, the easy answer is I don't know, but I do know, which is why it, the answer that I have come across is that it's to defend the interests of other countries. That's what it's for. Why do we have troops in South Korea? We're defending them against North Korea, which is in their interests, not American interests. We have advisors in Taiwan and in Ukraine. Why are they there? Well, they're not defending American interests. They're defending the interests of Taiwan and Ukraine. Why do we have troops in Europe? If the war is over... World War II or the Cold War, you can take your pick. The war is over. Why are we still have troops there? Well, we're serving the interest of the EU at large in keeping them safe from 
the very large force that is Russia. Why do we have troops in Pakistan and in the Middle East? We're, we're not defending U.S. and just over there. Osama bin Laden is dead. So why do we have troops in Pakistan? Well, it's because the Pakistanis want them there. Why do we have? Why did we have troops in Afghanistan? We were, we were defending the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan from the Islamic Emirate. And that got us 20 years of misery. And we have troops in Arabia. Why are they there? Oh, they're there because, well, they were afraid of Iran. And we... It's just one country after the other that we're defending the interests of instead of our own interests. And that is the problem because we have troops in places that they don't need to be in and that creates the animosity between us and say Russia and China and you can look at Syria as a really good example of this we were backing rebels against the Assad government and using our military to keep them in the fight but why why would we do that it's not American interests that Assad's government be toppled. That's in the interest of the rebels. They wanted the government there toppled. They were the ones who live with the consequences of that. And whether they succeed or fail, it was in their interests for us to be there. But Syria is Russia's ally. So Russia comes into the picture and they're upset with us for destabilizing the government of their ally and working with the the rebels who are fighting against Russia's ally. So in this place that we didn't need to be in, we have created animosity between us and Russia because we had our troops fighting a war that they didn't need to fight. because we were pursuing the interest in the foreign policies of other people, not the United States. And in the case of China, it's similar, although a little bit different. We're pursuing the interest of Taiwan, who haven't quite identified their own interests yet, although not being under direct mainland rule is probably it, as they haven't decided on independence. Uh, they still adhere to the one China policy, but I'm pretty sure they're in line with the one China, two systems. Uh, that's, that's what they want. If they want to remain part of China, which currently they do, because they haven't, they haven't gone full independent yet, although sentiments for independence grow, and either way, the United States doesn't have interests there. We really don't. But we have advisors there. Why? Well, because we because we have to we have to contain China. But why does the United States have to contain China? What does the US gain from that? Well, we don't really gain much at all from fighting them over there. But Japan and South Korea are threatened by South Korean, by South Korean, by Chinese expansionism. Australia is afraid of China. The Philippines and Vietnam are afraid of Chinese expansion. And it is because it is in their interests that we contain China. That's the reason we're talking about containing China. As though it were Cold War 2.0. Because Vietnam has plenty of interest in China being contained to the region and not beating them out of their claims to the South China Sea. And you should really look at Vietnam's claims to the South China Sea. And they, they have interest in containing China. The Philippines has interest in containing China. We, people talk about the first island chain and how important it is to keep China bottled up there. Who really 
has interests in bottling China up within the first island chain? Is it the United States? Or is it the people who live on the first island chain, like Japan, and the Philippines, and Taiwan, and Indonesia? It's... When you... When you get down to it, and when you look at who actually benefits from the stances America is taking, you it becomes much easier to see that the U.S. is not acting in American interests. It is acting in the interests of many other peoples from many other countries. And unfortunately, that is where the problem comes in. Because, again... It is the U.S. acting in the interests of Europe and Ukraine that creates the problem between us and Russia. It is the U.S. acting in the interests of the first island chain countries, uh, acting in the interests of the countries from the first island chain up to and including Taiwan, that has created the problems between the U.S. and China, uh, the ones that we talk about war over. Uh, there's trade and spying and intellectual property theft, but those are not things you're going to fight a war over. Uh, well, those aren't things that America's going to fight a war over anyway. Uh, I understand the importance of trade, but we wouldn't be talking about war over Ukraine or Taiwan if the United States was acting in the interests of the United States. But we're not. And that is the problem. I mean, if you think about it, the U.S. has historically had neutral to positive relations with both China and Russia. I mean, the Russians even sold us Alaska. That's not something you do to a country you're adversarial towards or your countries that are your enemies with. But we were neutral to positive at the time. And it's not like Russia and China became things after us. We're the new kid on the block. China and Russia have been around since before America was, well, not a British colony. They, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they've both been around since before America as a colony was founded. Especially China. So these countries have been around for all this time, America becomes a thing. There's no problem between us. There's no problem between us right up until after we acquired the West Coast. And there's no problem. There's it flares up in tensions every now and then, like with the Chinese Exclusion Acts and the Russian Revolution. But even after the Russian Revolution, it was... American industrialists and engineers who were hired by the Soviet Union to help build their industrial plant. So even then, when we were ideologically enemies, we were still able to leave them alone. Uh, this is post-revolution. We sent an expedition during the war, the Civil War, and they were there for a little bit. After the war, there was no, we have to topple this government. We, there was no, we have to contain the Soviet Union. We didn't recognize their government, but other than that, we left them alone. So, for most of our history, we're able to be neutral, at the very least, with Russia and China. But for some reason now, we are stuck in this endless feedback loop, this negative feedback loop, of hostilities. But I have identified the problem. We are pursuing the interests of other countries and not the United States. And it is because of this that we have problems. It, it's only after we began adhering to the foreign policy needs of other countries that China and Russia suddenly became our adversaries. Like, Russia was neutral to ally during the Second World War. So, afterwards, you would think that it would go back to being neutral. 
but because we took up the foreign policy needs of Europe and Japan after the war, that meant we had to contain the Soviets. And for similar reasons, because we're pursuing the foreign policy goals of Japan, Taiwan, and Australia, now there's similar desires to contain China, even though... For all of U.S. history that the Chinese have existed through, all right, and the Russians have existed through, throughout all of U.S. history, there was no need to contain these countries. No need. And for most of you and for most of early U.S. history, China had the largest economy in the world and the largest population. So, and, and we were barely a kid on the block at that point. So... For most of our history, we don't need to be hostile towards them. And when we're looking out for our interests, there's no problem. When we're looking out for the interests of other countries, now there's a problem. And now that we've committed ourselves to indefensible positions regarding Ukraine and Taiwan, uh, the problems will persist. And that's what we're able to observe. As every time there is talk of the United States and its relation with Russia and China, there is all almost immediately talk of Ukraine and talk of Taiwan and war over Ukraine and war over Taiwan and whether or not the U.S. is going to come to the aid of these countries. So that's the trajectory we're on, but I'll say this cannot last and it will end and it'll end either through concession where one side simply lays down their claims and it's more likely to be the united states than russia or china and or there will be war and one side's simply going to lose and they won't they don't get to have a claim after that and again, it's more likely that if there's a war, it will be the United States that loses due to where these conflicts would be fought, which for some reason, most people don't factor in the where of these conflicts. They look at how many carriers we have, but they don't look at the fact that the entire Chinese Air Force can be brought to bear in a conflict over Taiwan where ours cannot, well, not without making themselves extremely vulnerable. People don't look at the fact that Ukraine is flat. Russia has thousands of tanks. They specialize in armored personnel warfare. And Ukraine is on Russia's border. America is an ocean and a continent away. They can win those wars. And it's highly likely that we will lose them before we even got the chance to fight. So... I believe we are on track for conflict, uh, similarly to Israel and Iran, although the result won't be as disastrous for us as it will be for our Israel if it loses its coming conflict, but it'll definitely shatter the old paradigm of U.S. security guarantees, I'll tell you that much. And what the world looks like after that, well, we'll just have to wait and see. But that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed my glorious broadcast on this glorious podcast. The world, especially the Middle East, is changing. And there are conflicts brewing for us as well here in the States. We will see how we handle them, although I am not exactly optimistic. But we'll see how things go. So till we meet again next time on Monday. Ah, I'm just, uh, I'm just destroying my closing argument in the most glorious way possible. We're just, uh, broadcast podcast. The world is changing, but <laughs> but regardless of how much the world changes and how bleak it may look for uh, a certain superpower, we will still have fun watching this together. Now, I have been your host, Tyshawn Wade, 
And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.